Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. I am very excited to report the release of the trailer for my short slasher flick, Pizza Man, that I co-wrote and co-directed with my film pal, Katie McBrown. For those that have just entered the crypt, maybe for the first time, Pizza Man is a short film that I shot in November here in Philadelphia and tells the story of an eccentric elderly couple, Helen and Teddy. Many years prior, their young son was run down by a pizza delivery driver, which caused them to become grief-stricken, and they vow to never eat pizza again. They've dedicated their lives to running all pizza establishments out of town, and when a new shop, Pizza Heaven, opens, they take revenge. I am very excited about this little picture and can't wait for all of my fellow crypt dwellers to see it. It has made me so proud to see our film come together, and I could not have done it without my fellow film pals. What I have found so neat about this particular filmmaking experience is that there have been so many people across the Movie John universe that have assisted with making Pizza Man possible. Ashley Jane has made a beautiful score for the film, Suze Elsima designed the costumes. Liz Locke of Cinema Sips assisted with production design. Hugo Marmuji served as our art director, creating the graphics and posters for the film. My husband, Benjamin Leonard, ensured that we were well-fed and hydrated. And Hunter Bush and Allison Yakalis were wonderful production assistants throughout. To anyone I missed, thank you. We could not have made this flick possible without you. Pizza Man delivers later this year. Make sure to follow moviejohn.com slash pizza man for updates and information about the film. Until then, I'm already in the midst of scheming my next flick. Mwah! Take a cassette out of its case, and most people just see an empty box. But Sony saw something quite different. Sony introduces the only cassette player as small as a cassette case. The incredible-sounding Super Walkman. Another venture that I am currently toiling away on in my laboratory is the creation of mixtapes. I have much interest in creating a concoction of sounds, songs, and movie clips for the ultimate cinematic noise experience. Recently, I made a purchase of a boombox that is equipped with the most fandangle new alien technology that will allow me to make superb and electric night noise. I will begin my experimenting soon, 
If you're interested in partaking as a test subject, feel free to drop me a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Today I shall be prying open the coffin of Hollywood's dashing and suave leading man, Rex Harrison, in the 1947 picture, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. This picture was based on the novel by R.A. Dick, which was a pen name for Josephine Leslie. She wrote the story based on her sea captain father, Robert Abercrombie, which is where the initials from her pen name derived. The word Muir means sea in Scots Gaelic. It was often said that sailors were married to the sea and that it was truly the only woman they loved. For Rex Harrison's portrayal of the ornery sea captain, Daniel Gregg, that statement couldn't ring more true. The script was written by Philip Dunn, who prior to this had been nominated for writing of the film How Green Was My Valley in 1941. The Ghost in Mrs. Muir tells the story of a recently widowed, youthful English woman, Lucy Muir, played by the glorious Jean Tierney, who will most undoubtedly be a featured corpse in the near future. I adore her magnificent work on the silver screen. With the sudden death of her husband Edwin, Lucy decides to act on a dream, to have a life by the sea. Please, can't we discuss this without quarreling? I'm sure I don't know how you'll manage, Lucy. You haven't any money. I have the income from Edwin's gold shares, and Anna and I can live quite cheaply with Martha. Do you mean you're taking Martha Huggins? And why not? She was with me before I came to live with you. Of all the ungrateful... Please, Eva. I'm sorry, but I've made up my mind. But where, Lucy? Where can you go? The seaside, I think. I've always wanted to live by the sea. Despite the protests from her in-laws, Lucy packs up her daughter Anna and her housekeeper Martha to start a new chapter in her life. Lucy's daughter Anna, played by Natalie Wood, ended up having a banner year, as 1947 was the same year in which the famed Hollywood flick, Miracle on 34th Street, was also released. In that picture, Natalie Wood played the adorable Susan Walker. In searching for her dream home, Lucy stumbles upon Gull Cottage. She describes it as a place that perfectly suits her despite the many objections of the property manager, Mr. Coombe. Throughout the film, there is a theme that I find most uplifting. Lucy's complete insistence on being independent, but also making decisions that are right for her. To me, she is winning as a widow. Not only this, but her widow life has also brought, in my opinion, some particularly flattering clothes as well. There is something about the color black, the color of a moonless night. I find it absolutely bewitching. 
The cottage itself is frankly one of my dreams as well. High up on a cliff overlooking a breathtaking coastline. I watch this movie and immediately feel calmed by the sounds of the sea. However, there is one issue with the place. Something more than just a leaky faucet. The cottage is haunted. You're clean. I beg your pardon, Mrs. Muir. Oh, not you, Mr. Coombe. The telescope. <laughs> Did you laugh, Mr. Coombe? <laughs> I, I didn't want to show it to you, but oh, no, no, you had to see it. Haunted. How perfectly fascinating. How absolutely thrilling. A seaside home complete with its own haunting sea captain specter. I have not mentioned this yet. However, in case you have not figured it out, this flick is one of my absolute favorite films. It is a film that not only showcases my ultimate ideal living quarters, but it has made me put some serious thought into my afterlife situation. For when coffin time arrives, I don't want to find myself haunting in a place that does not suit me. I shall be particular when it comes to my final resting place, for when I make that ultimate checkout, I don't want to find myself in unpleasant surroundings. It is learned that Captain Gregg's early departure from this earth was much rather unexpected. According to Mr. Coombe, Captain Gregg had committed suicide, and this is why he haunts the cottage ever since. At least you know now why it won't suit you. Yes, I suppose so. Why does he haunt? Was he murdered? No, he committed suicide. <gasps> I wonder why. To save someone the trouble of assassinating him, no doubt. Come, we'll go to Laburnum Mountain. It isn't until about 22 minutes into the film that we are finally introduced to the dear Captain Gregg. Lucy decides to make a cup of tea. It is, of course, a dark and stormy night. The only light being provided by a candle that she so cautiously holds. And I must state, this candlelight truly adds a feeling of spookiness. This, of course, is the moment when the captain decides to make his first appearance. Something that is quite interesting is the way in which they chose to show the apparition by utilizing no photographic effects whatsoever. When the captain appears to Lucy, he is just like you are, or I. This was said to be done to keep to the budget and to ensure that the production wasn't slowed down due to any elaborate trickery. I was immediately smitten with Captain Gregg. His simplistic yet suave appearance enamors me. A rugged beard, charming moustache, and his black ensemble that consists of a turtleneck, overcoat, and trousers wore nicely on his trim form. Let's just say there was a reason Rex Harrison was often referred to as Sexy Rexy. 
Upon making the acquaintance of the captain, Lucy learns that his death four years prior was not due to suicide, and instead was rather a grave accident when the captain kicked the valve on the gas-fired room heater when he fell asleep. His death derailed his plans for the cottage. He had intended for the location to be a home for retired sailors, and that anyone previously that had attempted to live in the cottage, he had frightened away. I guess I with my foot in my sleep. It was a stormy night, like this. Half a gale blowing from the south-southwest into my windows, so I shut them as any sensible man would. Wouldn't you? Yes, I, I suppose so. Then the coroner's jury brought it into suicide because me blasted charwoman testified I always slept with my windows open. How the devil should she know how I slept? Oh, I'm so glad. You have a strange sense of humor, madam. I mean, because you didn't commit suicide. But if you didn't, why do you haunt? Because I have plans for my house which don't include a pack of strangers barging in and making themselves at home. Then you were trying to frighten me away. Do you call that trying? Take note, fellow crypt dwellers. Although the captain made the mistake of accidentally kicking the room heater, causing his demise, his first mistake was actually not having a will. For those that don't plan suffer the consequences in the afterlife. He may have been young, but there is never harm in being prepared. As you may recall from previous episodes, a well-thought-out, documented will can lead to many thrills. Despite the captain's crabby demeanor and stubborn attitude, Lucy doesn't back down. She is determined to not only make this roommate situation work, but she too has plans of her own for the cottage. I absolutely love Jean Tierney's fiery and fearless personality in this film. I have read that initially Jean portrayed the part of Lucy Muir as more of a screwball of sorts, comedic and playful. Joseph Mankiewicz, the director, ended up meeting with the actor as he wanted more for this character. So the first two days of shooting were actually scrapped and reshot under different direction. Frankly, I can't imagine feeling the way I do about the character if she were played in a zany or goofy way. I adore Lucy's tenacity and her willingness to change her habits and previous way of life. I want it turned into a home for a tired seaman. Then you should have said so in your will. I didn't leave a will. Why not? Because I didn't expect to kick the blasted gas on with my blasted foot! I won't be shouted at! Everyone shouts at me and orders me about, and I'm sick of it, do you hear? Blast! 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 <laughs> or laughed at either. I won't leave this house. You can't make me leave it. I won't. They agree to terms. Lucy shall remain in the home, taking the front bedroom, in which a self-portrait of Captain Gregg shall be hung. By the way... I would absolutely love this painting for my own abode. And the way it's shot in this film is magnificent. Mankiewicz uses the portrait as a way to have Harrison's presence in the room, even when he's not physically there. There is also an agreement 
that the captain shall stay clear of daughter Anna. No intention of making you happy. I merely want to do what's best for the house. Then we're agreed. And you'll go right away and leave us alone. I will not go right away. Why should I? Because of Anna, my little girl. I don't want her frightened into fits. I never frighten little girls into fits. But think of the bad language she'd learn and the morals. Confound it, madam, my language is most controlled. And as for me morals, I lived a man's life and I'm not ashamed of it. But I can assure you no woman's ever been the worse for knowing me. And I'd like to know how many mealy-mouthed blue noses can say the same. She's much too young to see ghosts. Very well. Of course, Lucy's seaside bliss couldn't go without a hiccup. Her pesky in-laws decide to drop in and drop bad news at her doorstep. It appears that the trust that Edwin had set aside for his family has dried up, and Lucy has now found herself penniless. The terrible in-laws seem to be pleased as punch, and in a most satisfying way, offer to Lucy that she can move back to London with them. The captain has other plans, though, telling dear Lucy not to fret, for they will make money somehow. They will write a book, a memoir about his life at sea. Lucy will take the credit, publish the book, and obtain the money needed to purchase the cottage. I suppose you'd run away from home. Yes, I was an orphan, brought up by a maiden aunt in a country village. Now let's get on with it. Where was I? Upstairs. Ah, yes. The, uh... The customs of Marseille are different to any... Different from. To or from, who cares? This isn't a blasted literary epic. It's the unvarnished story of a seaman's life. It certainly is unvarnished. Well, smear on your own varnish. Change the grammar all you please, but leave the guts in it. In writing the book, the two become closer, enjoying one another's company, and eventually falling in love. Oh, how I dream of having a ghost friend of my own. How incredibly fascinating it would be to have a poltergeist pal providing me with advice and wisdom. Maybe we would write a screenplay together. Oh, the possibilities. Unfortunately for the captain and Lucy, there are some things that just can't work with a specter form. He encourages her to seek love from someone that's living and breathing. Which brings me to Uncle Nettie. In actuality, his name is Miles Fairley. Uncle Nettie being a pen name that he utilizes for the children's books that he writes. Miles is a smug individual and played wickedly by notorious character actor George Sanders, who is most often known for playing the slimiest of characters. Miles slithers into Lucy's life when she is at the London publisher attempting to sell the book she wrote with the captain. Miles, being a prominent writer for the publisher, assists Lucy by providing her with his appointment time. Now before we continue with this ghostly tale, it is time for an intermission of sorts, my goblins and ghouls. Follow me as we venture on a trip to the morgue to chat corpses with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. 
Together, we shall further examine character actor George Sanders, an actor who specializes in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark to get ourselves a corpse. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. Who do we have on the slab on this fine moonlit night? Well, chap, we have a fine specimen on the docket today. He's a character corpse that was often known for his cunning and his sinister ways on the silver screen. George Sanders. I'm only here now because I followed you back. So you may have my appointment for which you are just in time. That's very good of you, but I'm afraid I can't accept. Now, my dear young woman, if you will set your book of social graces aside just long enough to seize an opportunity that you want very much by merely indulging a small, natural, selfish instinct. Without doubt, sir, you are the most forward gentleman I have ever encountered. Oh, yes, of course. He truly was an elegant devil, particularly in the film we're uncovering on today's crypt episode, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. What did he die from? Well, after being depressed due to a string of tragedies in the space of a year, he went through a lot. The death of his wife, his mother, and his brother, followed by a failed sausage investment, which cost him millions, George fell into an extreme depression and became a recluse. A failed sausage investment? Mm -hmm. Let's discuss this further. I'm very puzzled how one could spend millions on an investment in sausage. I will be honest, I've never been in the sausage industry, but I, I struggle. I struggle with this. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how this happens. Millions on sausages. Not sure. I feel like more than sausage was being made. <laughs> I believe. Like there was something else going on. I feel that's a fair thought. I wonder if it was being exported mm. or if it was like just a U.S. run business. You know what? Exported. That would make sense. That could, that could get tricky. But I do find it puzzling. Yeah. You know, millions of millions. I guess he loved sausage. I don't know. I did see, though, in 1937, he had predicted to a fellow actor, David Niven, that he would commit suicide. So, I suppose he and David were great friends. I would imagine. Oh, I love. I love David Niven, that's all. Oh, I, you know, I don't feel I've watched many of his films. I, and I, I should have looked him up further before today's trip to the morgue, but I didn't have an opportunity. What's your favorite movie that he's in? Well, as a child, I loved him in Candle Shoe. I don't know that one. Well, it's a Disney flick. However, I do recommend Separate Tables, which he won an Academy Award for, which was very well-deserved. Check him out in separate tables. 
Okay, to get back to George's suicide, it went down in 1972. He checked into what I'm imagining is probably a fancy hotel near Barcelona, and he swallowed the contents of five bottles of barbiturates. What I find really fascinating is that he didn't leave one suicide note. He left three, which I, I find like, wow, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a yeah. bit overdoing it. But the one note that I guess people have discovered or the one that is most known, he wrote, Dear world, I am leaving because I am bored. I feel I have lived long enough. I am leaving you with your worries in this sweet cesspool. Good luck. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel fits a lot of like his characters and who he was. I agree. Basically, everyone sucks except me, and that's why I'm leaving. <laughs> good luck. Yes. Good last words. Those are good last words. What do you say we cut into the corpse? Why, yes. Scalpel, please. I think we shall begin with discussing the five attributes that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, he's a charming, high-class heel. Number two, indisputably a deep, soothing voice. Number three, enjoyed being known as a rude and disagreeable person. Okay. Number four, definitely reliably sketchy. And number five, consistently swarmy. Some might even say that George Sanders was a perfume parlor snake, as was mentioned in The Ghost in Mrs. Muir. Yes, I do recall that, and I think it's quite fitting. Because, to be quite honest, as soon as I saw George show up in this movie, as Miles Fairley, I actually rolled my eyes, because I knew he was going to be trouble. And, well, I was right. And it's funny, actually, that we're speaking about George Sanders, because over the last couple months... I've watched and rewatched him in four movies that I can think of. The movies are all about Eve, Rebecca, the one we're discussing today, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, and Lourdes. And I seriously wonder, did he ever play a character who wasn't awful? And I know I've seen him in other films, but it's been too long that I can't quite remember. So when I think about the characters that he plays, I make a face, and you can't see my face right now. Trust me, it's one of general disdain. So I'm curious, do you agree or think that it takes a particularly talented actor to be unlikable? Or do you think that any old jerk could do it? I do feel it does take someone with talent to play a villain. And my theory has been that, honestly, I think if I was an actor, which I never wanted to be, but if I was, I think it would be much more thrilling to play a villain than a good guy. 
Because even though, like, the villain ends up always going, you know, getting it in the end, I guess, so to speak, they always seem to have more fun yeah. than the hero or the good guy. Because I was thinking, who would be, like, a complete opposite of, like, a George Sanders? And it would probably be, like, James Stewart or Doris Day. Yeah, definitely. It's not that I don't think they didn't have fun on set. I don't know, like, the bad guys, for example, like a Robert Mitchum, mm. they just seem like they have more fun in the movie. Yeah. I don't know, I think it's harder, though, for an actor to play a villain and then have to try to switch to playing a hero. And to your point, I don't remember any movies George Sanders was in where he just, like, wasn't slimy or creepy. Well, I have a question. Have you seen the Hitchcock movie Foreign Correspondent? No, I have not. I haven't either, which I think is interesting because I own it. And as you know, I'm a very big Hitchcock enthusiast, but that's like a big one. There aren't ton that I haven't seen. There's only a few, but that's one of them. But I was reading today that he plays a good guy on that. So oh. I'll have to check that out and see what that looks like. It's funny. I recently, and I've been telling you about it, I, I've gotten into this actor, Dan Jurea. Mm -hmm. And he was in a lot of like noir film type genre. And recently I caught one of his movies on TCM, The Underworld Story. And it had one of the intros on with Eddie Muller from mm -hmm. or Noir Alley. And in the beginning on the intro, he mentioned like this was the first time that D'Andrea actually played a hero of sorts. People hated it. Oh, okay. Because like all of his movies prior to that, he was always kind of this villainish type guy. And when he showed up as a hero, people just rejected it. And I kind of feel like I wonder if that's what happened to George, too. Yeah, could be. Because when he showed up and goes to Mrs. Muir, you just knew he's up to something. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And you know, the other thing about him in this movie is he goes by Uncle Nettie. And I have a problem with that. Uncle Nettie with no apparent actual nieces or nephews. So this is no to me. That is a warning sign. Well, I find it very odd, but then also fitting that he writes children's books. Mm -hmm. One, because he is a child. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the level he's on, clearly. Yeah, basically. You know, once Mrs. Muir realizes it and puts it together, like, oh, you're Uncle Nettie. These are the books my child reads. It's like I'd immediately would want to burn them. Yeah. <laughs> like, once I figure out, like, oh, this is the man writing these stories. No. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fitting. Yeah, so, like, there are many moments within the movie in which I found him, though, to especially be no. I do not like the name Uncle Nettie, but when he first meets Mrs. Muir and says to her, 
It's easy to understand why the most beautiful poems about England in the spring were written by poets living in Italy at the time. How do you do? I'm not a poet, but I've got an umbrella, and your hat, if I may say so, is singularly inadequate under the circumstances. I didn't bargain for this blasted rain. That is, I'm afraid I shall be late and miss the last train for home. I could call you a cab, if you ask nicely. <laughs> Oi, cab! Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're good, I will call you a cab. Classic. Um, if you're good. No. no. <laughs> and she doesn't even know him. Correct. I guess, well, one thing is to say he did somewhat assist her with getting the book published. Okay. Because he gave her his appointment, his time slot at the publisher. This is true. Clearly, the work spoke for itself. Exactly. The guy would not have agreed to publish the work if it was crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gave her the appointment, but him calling her a cab and then immediately climbing into it with her. <laughs> mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that she obviously makes the correct assumption in saying that he's one of the most forward gentlemen she has ever met. I personally think she's being polite. He is honestly probably the rudest person. I agree. Definitely something you see, again, in a lot of his films. Yeah. He always seems to play someone who, there's no doubt who is most important, and it's himself. Well, and I'm just remembering now, too, I mean, it's been a bit since I watched All About Eve, but in that film, doesn't he end up with Eve? I think so. I think yeah, so. Yeah, because I think he blackmails her. It's, it's awful. Into loving him. Yeah. Yes, he finds out her past. Addison. Yeah. He does what's needed to, to get what he wants, I guess. Yeah, I definitely think that is true, but when he's, obviously, when he's done with someone, he just disposes of them. For sure. I know you mentioned Lord, because we had recently watched that as mm -hmm. well. And in that, what I thought was surprising is you kind of go through most of the movie thinking he's the one. Yeah. And I won't reveal who the person is. It was kind of strange at the end. Like, I did feel that was a bit of a twist. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't him. But at the same point, he wasn't even that great of a guy in that. No. No. Like, he was still... There was still something off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. One thing that I wish that Rex Harrison, the ghost would have gotten some sort of revenge on Uncle Nettie. I wish that as well. He saw what Uncle Nettie really was. Mm -hmm. Someone should have poisoned him. I agree. Do you know what this means? What? We should write the sequel. <laughs> yes. The Revenge of the Ghost and the Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Any other attributes or interesting things you want to talk about with this corpse? Well, 
George Sanders is always charming. And, I mean, the thing about charming people is you can be charming whether your intentions are good or not so good. You can still be charming. And George Sanders always played a charming devil. Agreed. And I will say, though, despite me not actively liking the character, I like watching him. I do, too. I, I find his performances to be entertaining, and I knew he had won an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. But it was for All About Eve, which didn't surprise me, because in that, I feel his line delivery is just often in that movie so cutting. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Dr. Carruthers, for this little field trip. Oh, thank you. I think it's time that you grab the blankie. Time to tuck him in. Yes. Good night, George. Good night, George. I suppose without Uncle Nettie, Lucy may have not gotten her book deal. However, I believe the work speaks for itself. I also must mention here, there are so many things that I love about this film, but is truly the relationship with the captain and Lucy that I am most fond of. Sure, the captain can be rather curt and at times a bit rude, especially when it comes to his opinions of women in society. But I do believe that the film truly does put into question gender roles. This is seen on many occasions with her banter with the sea captain, informing him that she is capable of doing things for herself and is not merely a helpless female. It is also most notable when she takes the book to be published and the publisher immediately thinks she has brought him a sappy romance. She proves him wrong. I could go on with the topic, but I'm sure you get the point. Regardless, though, the good captain is not pleased with her newfound friendship with Uncle Nettie, and to be honest, neither was I. The way he was smirking at you like a cat at the fishmonger's. Should have slapped his face. Why? I found him rather charming. Rather charming. Now you're starting to talk like him. How in blazes do you want me to talk? That's better. I think you're being extremely childish. I'm only trying to protect you from your own worst instincts. I'll manage my own instincts, thank you. What made you lie to the blighter? I didn't lie to him. You did? You told him he was Anna's favorite author. You know perfectly well she hates Uncle Nettie and reads nothing but dead-eyed dick, the rover of the Spanish main. I had to say something. Mm, you should have pushed him out of the cab. In another minute, I would have. Why, Daniel, I believe you're jealous. Of course I'm not jealous. You think me for a blasted schoolboy? Besides, jealous is a disease of the flesh. I've never known you to be so disagreeable today of all days. What's so wonderful about today? The book, Danny. Mr. Sproul liked the book. Oh, I suppose being a woman, you can't help it. You can't help what? Making a fool of yourself. Daniel, you stop sulking. You yourself said that I should mix with people, that I should see men. I said men, not perfume parlor snakes. He's a man and a very nice one.
Blood and Swash inevitably becomes a huge success and bestseller, the royalties affording Lucy to purchase the cottage. For me, it is at this moment when the story becomes heartbreaking. Of course, Lucy would love nothing more than to be with the captain, but instead finds her life invaded by Miles. He literally follows her home, swooning over her, painting her self-portrait, which is unflattering, I might add. The captain is disgusted by this love affair. Heck, I am too. Captain Gregg reflects on the inconvenience of not being alive, so as not to experience further torture or to stand in the way of Lucy's happiness. The captain makes the decision to leave. While Lucy is sound asleep in her bed, he whispers into her ear, informing her that it was she who wrote the book, she alone, and that the ghost of the captain was merely a dream. Trouble yourself, my dear. It's not your fault. I should have known it was on the chart. You've made your choice, the only choice you could make. You've chosen life. And that's as it should be. Whatever the reckoning. And that's why I'm going away, my dear. I, I can't help you now. I can only confuse you more and destroy whatever chance you have left of happiness. Make your own life amongst the living. What upsets me most about this part of the story is that her ghost pal, Sexy Rexy, floats away, literally out the window, into the fog and mist. And who are we left with? Uncle Nettie. Come on, it does not take a rocket scientist to know that he is up to something. As the captain so bluntly put it, he is a perfumed parlor snake. When Uncle Nettie sends word that he will be canceling a planned trip to Gull Cottage due to needing to take a trip to London for a few days, Lucy decides to track him down. She needed to go into town anyways to sign a contract with the publisher. While at the publisher's office, she obtains the home address of Uncle Nettie. This should have been assigned to her, the fact that she never had visited his home before. He always had come to hers. Surprise poppins to someone's home always leads to a rather exciting circumstance, don't you think? Upon dropping by at Uncle Nettie's, Lucy learns that he's not only married, but has two small children. You'll wait for him, won't you? I expect him back any minute, and we'll have tea. Now I... I'll go. I, I'm afraid I've made a mistake. A mistake, Mrs. Muir? Yes, I, I'm sorry. I think I understand, my dear. And I'm sorry, too. Truly, I am. You see, it isn't the first time something like this has happened. My heart breaks for Lucy. She inevitably spends the rest of her days as a recluse, with her trusty housekeeper Martha at her side. Time moves swiftly, as it naturally does. Her daughter, now grown, returns home to announce her engagement to a Navy lieutenant. It is at this time she also reveals to her mother 
the friendship she too once had with Captain Gregg, this beginning her obsession with men of the sea. Daughter Anna feels bad for Lucy, for Lucy never found love again after her experience with Uncle Nettie. However, Anna's rather relieved that didn't work out. I love when Anna and Lucy celebrate Uncle Nettie's ill fate after Lucy spotted him later in life. They chuckle over him becoming a fat, bald, lonely man with a drinking problem. Who cries? It is at this moment that Lucy then reveals a line of dialogue that, well, I believe might be my favorite line in any film, as it resonates with how I often feel. Don't get me wrong. I love my partner in crime very much. And part of that love is his understanding of my joy of occasionally spending the night in my laboratory, toiling away on experiments in the pale moonlight, living that solitary vampire life. Listen, shall we, to the most perfect line of dialogue delivered from a superb actor, Gene Tierney. It's hard to explain. You can be much more alone with other people than you are by yourself even if it's people you love. That sounds all mixed up, doesn't it? No, not a bit. Once again, years pass. We now find an elderly Lucy who happens to be suffering from illness. Martha brings her a glass of hot milk, and after a single sip, the glass hits the floor. Lucy has passed on. This leads to what I feel is the most absolutely perfect and magical ending in cinema. Captain Gregg reappears, and we see the spirit of Lucy leave her body, but she is now young once more. When the captain and her look at one another, my heart swells. They walk together, down the steps, and out the cottage's front door, into a heavenly fog to begin their adventure together. And now, you'll never be tired again. Come, Lucia. Come, my dear. I love this beautiful film so much, and hope that you have now been encouraged to seek it out if you have not seen it already. My film pal, Liz Locke, recently wrote about the film on her cocktail website, cinemasips.com, and recommends having a Sea Captain special while you watch in honor of Captain Greg. Consisting of bourbon, champagne, club soda, absinthe, bitters, and a sugar cube with a twist of lemon, I believe Captain Greg would approve. I have not watched many Rex Harrison films, However, I can't imagine another film of his that I would adore as much as The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. It has so many elements that I find so intriguing. A handsome ghost with a bit of a snarky attitude and a pipe, who enjoys schemes and adventure, and who just so happens to live in the home of my dreams, a cottage at the sea. Something that surprised me about the film is that it actually was filmed entirely in California, along the Pacific coastline, despite it being set in London and having mostly English actors. 
Oh, the magic of the movies. I would also be remiss if I did not mention the beautiful romantical score composed by the great Bernard Herrmann, whose resume is extremely impressive. One of my favorite films that he composed, of course, is Psycho. In conducting my research, though, I did learn that the Ghost and Mrs. Muir's score, he felt, was one of his best. As for Rex, when he made this film, he already had quite the extensive filmography. This was also not his first picture in which he meddled with ghosts. In 1945, two years prior to the Ghost and Mrs. Muir release, he starred in a David Lean picture, Blythe Spirit, which I am almost sure will one day be featured here on the crypt. Unlike the Ghost and Mrs. Muir, Blythe Spirit falls more into the comedic genre. Rex would go on to be nominated twice for an Academy Award. First, for his performance in the 1964 film Cleopatra, and then again in 1965 for his role in My Fair Lady. It would be that role in which he would take home the statue. He passed away June 2, 1990, at the age of 81, after a battle with pancreatic cancer. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I obtained a Blu-ray copy from the wild world of the internets and encourage you to do the same. I find this is a film worthy of revisits, but it is also the saltiness of the captain that often will bring me much comfort and be warned, you may even pick up his accent. If you end up digging deeper, my little crypt dwellers, you shall find that this movie was also later turned into a sitcom in 1968 starring Hope Lang and Edward Mulhair. They play the roles of Lucy and Captain Greg, and the show ended up running for two seasons. I have not checked it out, but believe one may find it out there with a quick Google search. My understanding is that it takes more of a humorous approach, which frankly, is not me cup of tea. In my next episode, I will uncover the grave of Virginia Bruce to dissect and examine the 1940 film, The Invisible Woman. I haven't seen this film previously and am very excited to give it a watch. I hope you tune in as we will have yet another spooky trip to the morgue to autopsy the infamous character corpse, Margaret Hamilton. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the show. And take note, goblins and ghouls, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! Log into iTunes to leave your own review, or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know 
You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. We have just began to work on the summer print issue, which will feature films that focus on circuses, carnivals, and state fairs. It is sure to be one you don't want to miss, so make sure you subscribe at moviejohn.com shop. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It In A Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silberstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of our movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you are wondering where to start in silent film watching or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie or email at dear I saw it in a movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old fashioned, like your favorite little grave digger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. All of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. You keep saying you've got something for me. Something you call love, but confess. You've been a messin'. Where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you It is now time to close me coffin. Here I leave you to rest with me latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Lucy Muir. You can be much more alone with other people than you are by yourself, even if it's people you love. No need to fret, crypt dwellers, for when I am tucked in my coffin under my soft, periwinkle blue blankie, I shall be alone, but also content. Goodbye, film pals. I'm Googling morgue terms. Okay, good. <laughs>